Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. You can join me in reading Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, and it's also on page 871 if, you're, if you want to find that. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, What image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In case anybody's wondering, uh, this shirt, my, one of my favorite shirts, was given to us, given to me by a member of our church who's from Kenya, and it is one of my favorite shirts to wear, especially on a hot day. Uh, I'm really grateful for the diversity of our church and the different countries that are represented here, and I'm, I'm grateful this morning to be with you all in a coolish building. Uh, our house, we've been trying to keep it under 80 in the main uh, living room, which is a, a blessing to be able to even attempt that uh, when it's 95 outside. Um, so this morning, uh, Roberta just read the passage uh, that we're going to kind of unpack together, um, and our goal this morning is to, to come away hearing God's word and considering what it means for us. And uh, I hope this morning you came ready to, not just to worship as we've been doing, but to receive uh, something that God may have for you uniquely. Um, So the year was 1996, and I was in my uh, high school civics class. And our teacher, Mr. Kellogg, was very, very knowledgeable about all things related to government and to politics. And he was very, very smart, and he was very, very boring. I mean, goodness gracious. He could describe something fantastic happening right before your eyes, and it would still sound boring. So one of my classmates and I, one, one, during one class, we were kind of in the back row, and we were discussing how we might be able to kind of liven things up in our classroom a little bit. Now, the presidential elections were coming up. This is 1996, so for those of you who remember, it was Bob Dole, the Republican, versus Bill Clinton, the Democrat. And the, the elections were coming up, and we knew one thing about Mr. Kellogg, who taught our class, was not only was he a teacher in our high school, but he was also the chairman of the Democratic Committee of our entire county. So he was certainly going to be voting for Bill Clinton and even promoting him. And so my, my classmate and I, we jokingly um, talked about how it would be so funny if somebody could secretly put a vote for Dole bumper sticker on his back without him knowing about it. Which we then deduced would be impossible because those things are like this, right? It's, it's one thing to put a post-it note, but a whole bumper sticker, impossible. But, you know, for a Democratic chairman who teaches civics, man, in fact, that oh, would be hilarious. The next day, 
I walk into class, and Mr. Kellogg's desk is positioned so that, I could, that it's kind of sideways to the door that came in. And as I walked into class, I saw something on his back. It was a vote for Dole bumper sticker. And I thought, oh my goodness, he did it. He got one on Mr. Kellogg's back and he has no idea. And Mr. Kellogg, like he often did before class started, was shuffling around the, the class as the students filed in. And every single student that came in saw the vote for Dole bumper sticker and did their very best not to burst out laughing. That doesn't work very well, does it? Have you ever been in a group of people where everybody's trying not to laugh? Well, by the time Mr. Kellogg went up to take roll for the class, the entire class was bur burst out in laughter and just uncontrollable laughter. And Mr. Kellogg, in his monotone, boring voice, looked right at my classmate, Billy, and he said, someone's going to get an F. <laughs> he knew exactly who had patted him on the back coming into class that morning. So in high school, I... I, I Obviously, I didn't take politics uh, very seriously. Uh, the study of politics, all the things that Mr. Kellogg tried to impart to our class, right out of my brain, I was ready to move on to more important things. Now, as an adult, I've since learned that politics do matter. They influence everything about our communities and our nation and the world we live in. Now, you might say this morning, I'm not very political, uh, or I'm not a political person. Many people like to say that. And that may be true, but at some level, all of us engage with politics. At some level, all of us engage in politics. So if you buy goods and services, uh, you go to a restaurant, you buy uh, food from a grocery store, you are engaging in politics. How? You have to pay taxes. It's a very political thing. Taxes are one of the most political things. As, as Roberta just read and we'll talk about. If you vote, I just got a, a ballot in the mail uh, for the uh, upcoming elections here in Washington State. I was like, goodness gracious, how many senators are running, right? Uh, if you vote, you, you engage in political activities. If you share a meme on the internet, this is one of my favorites from my favorite politician, Abraham Lincoln, then you engage in politics at some level. Some of you are laughing because you get it. Some of you are like, who's this guy? So politics definitely mattered in Jesus' time as well. Politics, they had a, a very distinct shape. It was different than, uh, than our politics in our country. The, there was, it wasn't a democratic society. It was a, it was a really an uh, autocratic or um, dictator type, type culture. But Jesus himself, his whole nation, the nation of Israel, was under occupied rule. The Roman Empire, one of the biggest empires ever to exist in, 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 his, in recorded history, um, went from Britain in the west uh, all the way to Iraq and Iran in the east. It was a massive, massive empire. And so there was all sorts of uh, political challenges being in a nation that was very distinct culturally and ethnically and religiously from the Roman Empire, yet under their rule. Could you imagine if Canada ruled at us? Man, it would be crazy, right? No, it wouldn't be that, that different. But in Jesus' time, it was very different. The, the, the Roman way was very different than the Jewish way. So this is the setting of Jesus. There was all sorts of, of undercurrents. There was no um, cable news or social media to, to stoke rebellion or to, to, to gather people together. But nonetheless, 
people coalesced around shared vision, shared ideology, and pushed back against the political movements of their day. Years into his public ministry, Jesus now has everyone's attention. And, and just like we do today, people in Jesus' time are trying to figure him out through the lens of their own culture, their own ideology, and their own beliefs. So some people are asking, is Jesus a revolutionary? Does he want to overthrow Rome and become king? Certainly there was many people in Jesus' time that wanted that very thing. Is he a rabbi? Does Jesus uh, want to claim the ultimate spiritual authority and lead people in the way of God like some sort of supreme rabbi? These were the questions that people were asking now towards the tail end of his ministry. And how these questions are answered, well, they mattered then, and how we answer those questions today matter now. And this is why, as we've been walking through Mark's gospel, we've been asking kind of three questions, three guiding questions. One is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he a rabbi? Is he a political leader? Is he a rebel? Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? He says that over and over. If you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me. He calls 12 people to follow him. Many others willingly chose to follow him on their own. What does it mean for us today to follow Jesus? We don't see him like they did then. And if we are following him and we're taking his command seriously, we're called to call other people to follow him. So what are we inviting people into as, it, as we follow Jesus so why are we asking these questions? The reason we're asking these questions is because those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus, at the center of your faith is Jesus' command to both be and to make disciples. What is a disciple? We've talked about this before. It's a learner. It's an apprentice. It's somebody who does what they've been taught to do by somebody else. We're all being shaped by different things. We're all, we've all followed people, had people influence us. Jesus calls us to be his disciple, to be his apprentice. And then he says, I want you to invite other people into the same thing. So that's why these questions are important. Because if we don't know who Jesus is, if we don't know what it means to follow him, then this call of Jesus to be and to make disciples, it, it's just kind of abstract. It's just a Christianese kind of thing. It's the thing we talk about on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week we follow whatever we feel like following. So this is why we're asking these questions. And so each section of Mark that we've been taking through, we've been asking ourselves, what does this mean for me? What does it mean to be a disciple, to make disciples? How do I do that? So in the passage that Roberta just read, there's an immediate context uh, to the passage. And then there's a reason why this particular story has been preserved for us today. Now, some of you know this, some of you don't, but not everything that Jesus did is in the Bible. I, I wish it was, personally. But not everything that he did and said is. So the things that were preserved and have been for 2,000 years, they matter. So there's an immediate context. We're going to look at that today. And then there's a, why is it, for, why is it still here? Why did it survive to us, to Jesus' followers 2,000 years later? So the immediate context, just to remind you, for those of you that maybe were just joining us, this um, interaction that these leaders have with Jesus is part of a uh, series of very public attempts to undermine the authority and influence of Jesus. He's got authority. He, people are recognizing that. That's why thousands of people are showing up to hear him teach. 
He's been doing crazy miracles. And he's got an allegiance that's building. People are devoted to him. Just before this, thousands of people lined the road into Jerusalem as he went into it. So Jesus is pretty significant. So this significance is stirring up all sorts of uh, challenges for Jesus personally. But in the culture at large, there's a lot of people that just don't like him. He's a threat to them. And so, again, this is a series of public kind of attempts to, to undermine his authority. So let's look at this again, what Roberta just read in verse 13. Now it says later, they, the they is the religious leaders that Jesus had just had an interaction with before this. So these religious leaders sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, the fascinating thing about this is that Jesus, we see he is so disliked that two opposing parties have united to try and bring him down. The Pharisees and the Herodians are like, on political polar opposites. It's like the liberals and the conservatives, but like the hyper version of those. And this isn't the first time, actually, that they've been plotting against Jesus way back in Mark chapter 3. When Jesus first started his ministry, it says that there's this interaction where it says the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So this isn't an all-of-a-sudden thing. They have both equally hated him for a long time. Have you ever heard that phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? That's kind of what's happening here. So again, who are they? The the Pharisees, um, they are um, conservative. They're on the conservative spectrum religiously. They're Jewish um, religious leaders that are loyal to God alone. And they, they hold to the Old Testament scriptures about God and about the coming Messiah. Uh, they have built structures in society to, make, to create um, kind of guardrails so that people will stay true to God. They've added a lot of stuff to. Um, Jesus is constantly in conflict with the Pharisees because they've created almost um, untenable religious expectations. So they don't like Jesus, the super religious folk. And then there's the Herodians. If you were to, to take out the Ians on the end, Herod, does that sound familiar? As in King Herod? Uh, the, the term Herod is kind of, can be a generic term for king. And so the Herodians are committed, dedicated to the king or to any of the kings that are set up in the Roman Empire. And because of that, they're dedicated to Caesar, the ultimate authority of all of Rome. So these are Jewish people, but they tend to not be as religious. They're, they're more like the progressive, like they'll acknowledge some scripture, but it's not binding to them. What is binding to them is the will of the kings, the will of Caesar himself. So here is two very different groups of Jews that have united to try and take Jesus down. So clearly we see also in this, we can assume that Jesus has a strong belief in equality. He's comfortable in offending both parties equally. <laughs> he doesn't care what they think. And, and they know that, right? They start off this phrase trying to butter him up. 
Clearly, you don't care what people think. You hold to the truth, they say. They're trying to, trying to butter him up before they lay the trap. So they ask this question. The question is, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It's black and white, right? Now Jesus, how would he respond? Well, it says, it says that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It says they were amazed at him. So Jesus, they're, they're, they have this very limited definition. Yes or no, essentially. Pay or don't pay. And Jesus wouldn't fall for that trap. So he answers it in, in, in the way that they wanted him to answer, but then he adds to it. He says, give Caesar what is his. But then they weren't asking this. He says, and give God what is his. Let's look at both of these together and why I think this is why they were amazed at his answer. First of all, what's the deal with the tax? What's the deal with the tax? Well, there was an imperial tax that was levied on all non-Roman subjects. These would be people in the Roman Empire that were not natural-born citizens. That would include the whole nation of Israel. Caesar had this idea of how he could make some money. And the way he would do that is if you just want to live in my kingdom, not that they had a choice because they're in occupied territory, but just, to, just for the fact you exist in my kingdom, you have to give me a tax. You have to pay me money. And the money that you have to use actually is my money. It's called a denarius. A denarius would be equal to about a day's wage. Uh, here's a picture of a denarius from Jesus' time. And on the, the, the denarius, it's about the size of a dime. In fact, I have one. Somebody gave me one. Um, it's a little bit, uh, not quite as old as this one. Um, but on the, inscription, on the dime, you see on one side is the face of Caesar. And there's an inscription on both sides. And the inscription says on one side, Caesar Augustus Tiberius. And on the back side, it says, son of the divine Augustus. Son of the divine Augustus. What does divine mean? It means he's God. And so many conservative Jews, just at the very existence of this money, would be absolutely offended that Caesar would claim to be God. And so this tax, that not only do they just not like tax, nobody likes taxes, but the very money they have to use, they feel like is an affront to their religious beliefs. That they would even have in possession something that would claim that Caesar is like God. So the, the Pharisees are asking this question because they want to know, Jesus, are you cool with this? You shouldn't be, right? If you're a good Jew, you shouldn't be cool with Caesar claiming this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, be up for paying the tax. And the Herodians, they wanted to be like, yes, and if he's not cool with it, then he's a rebel and we can have him arrested for trying to start an insurrection. So you see what was happening here, right? One, one historical thing, I, I didn't even know about this until I started reading the, uh, doing some study on this, but about 25-ish years or so before this, there was a very devout Jew named Judas, the Galilean, who actually, because of this very tax, 
started an insurrection against the government trying to push back against the payment. He got lots of people involved, and it was violent, and it was bloody, and he lost his life for it. And so I can imagine that both the Herodians and the Pharisees had this in mind. They're like, oh, if Jesus is like Judas, we don't have to kill him. He'll lead this revolution to its logical conclusion. So they were just trying to accelerate what they thought Jesus might already have in mind to start a rebellion. So after calling uh, out their hypocrisy and even asking the question how they were talking to him, Jesus essentially says in his answer this. He says, listen, Caesar, he's the one that minted this money. His image is on it. So just give it back to him. Now, if he would have stopped there, then it would have seemed like he was siding with the Herodians, the ones that want Caesar to have this power. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, but how about this? God minted you. His image is on you. So give yourself to him. Now, for years, I've read this passage growing up. I grew up in the church, and I read this passage, and it was always focused on, yeah, just give the money back to Caesar. But he's saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and God what is God's. And how do we know that he had this in mind, that we would give ourselves to God? Well, Genesis 2 talks about that we are made, each of us, in the image of God. God's image is on us. Whether you ever acknowledge God or not, you are made in his image. And so Jesus' response was radical. He doesn't just fall into the limited response, should we pay or shouldn't we pay? He takes that trap question and he causes them to zoom out and consider who is really in charge. And it says they were amazed at his answer. Essentially, he's saying, Caesar has limited authority. Those little pennies of his, give them back to him. But God has ultimate authority. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Mark's gospel records that both sides were amazed at his response. And we might ask why. Well, because he saw the trap. Now, that was an easy trap to see. Maybe because his answer was ambiguous enough that each group interpreted it as favoring their position. The, the Herodians could walk away and said he paid the tax, and the Pharisees could walk away and said, well, he said God was in charge. Maybe that's why they're amazed. I think it goes even beyond that. I think they were amazed because even though they opened up the question with fake flattery, what did they say? You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Even though they opened up in that way, they now saw it. <laughs> they saw the wisdom of Jesus. He used it against them, <laughs> so to speak. So we ask today, what is the way of God? What does it mean for us to give God ourselves if we are made in his image? Now you remember this wasn't a democracy. Jesus doesn't say, hey, y'all, I voted for Caesar, so of course you should give him his money. He didn't say that. He didn't, he didn't make it political. There were no elections in the Roman Empire anyways. Jesus is simply recognizing that Caesar has rights to lay claim to what is his, and in this way, Jesus actually affirms, listen up here, Jesus affirms the role of government. He affirms the role of government. Later on in Romans uh, 13, Paul riffs on this same idea. He says that 
every human authority is still under the sovereignty of God. But then he says the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Paul, what, he frames this in what? God is in charge. He is the ultimate authority. Everything that is happening in existence is because he's allowing it. So view the governing authorities through that lens. If you have, pay your taxes, give them respect, give them honor. If your candidate wasn't elected, still pray for them. Now, we do live in this world. There are worldly obligations. In Jesus' case, it was to Caesar. In our case, it's our elected officials. In recent weeks, there's been so much um, said about rising gas prices, right? And I saw one um, statistic that showed Washington State has the highest gas tax. And so immediately, uh, inside of myself, I was like, man, we could be saving like 50-some cents a gallon if we didn't have to pay the gas tax. And I thought, okay, what's the gas tax for again? Oh, yes, it's to maintain the roads and the bridges. Yeah, what if the government got out of that? They weren't taxing anything. Okay, then it would be up to my neighborhood to figure out how to fix these roads. And then what we would probably do to fix the roads is we'd probably, uh, anybody that didn't live in our neighborhood, well, we'd have to pool our money first. Okay, so there would be that to take care of the roads. Then anybody that didn't come in our neighborhood, we'd start getting annoyed by that because, like, outsiders are using our roads. So we'd probably have to put up a gate at my neighborhood. So if you wanted to drive in, you have to pay, like, a dollar. And then I started realizing, goodness gracious, I'm so grateful for the government. I'm so grateful that our state decided to deal with this, that it's not privatized. Could you imagine? <laughs> so we have to zoom out sometimes uh, when it comes to issues of politics and see there is a good, it is a good and beneficial thing to have these things. There was a, a massive fire two blocks from my, uh, or three blocks from where we live just a couple weeks ago in an apartment complex. A, a car burst into flames exploded, a gas tank exploded, caught four more cars on fire, those gas tanks exploded, then it caught an uh, apartment building on fire. They call it a three-alarm fire. There was a helicopter and every fire engine and everything. Man, I'm so grateful that my taxes went to cover the fire department. If they wouldn't have showed up, that entire block would have burned and maybe it spread all the way to my house. But they were able to limit it, right? So this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. And, you know, we live in a culture that is increasingly distrustful of authority and striving for autonomy. You can't tell me what to do. And words like submit and obey in our current culture, they're like curse words. How dare you use that word? Phrases like respect your elders, which were once common in my generation, are now considered antiquated. You don't have to respect nobody. I know just as much as that old person. We've even got things in our culture like the Gadsden flag making a comeback. You know what the Gadsden flag is? It's the revolutionary flag. It shows a snake that says, don't tread on me. It's a symbol of rebellion and revolution. It's a symbol that nobody can tell me what to do. This is the, this is the attitude that is permeating our culture. And so because this is a, a primary value of our culture, this autonomy, this almost rebellious spirit that... We look at somebody on the other political spectrum as an enemy as opposed to an image bearer of God. 
We, we nitpick every little thing that a political party does wrong or every elected leader does wrong. Man, when, we, when COVID first hit, I thought I would, the last place I would want to be is in the governor's office. To have to make those decisions in the first time in his lifetime, the first time in 100 years in our country, to try and figure out how to save people's lives. What an impossible situation to be in. He's no scientist. He didn't know what to do. He was just taking advice from different people and trying to make the wisest decision he could make. And people were getting mad at him. I see bumper stickers now that say F. Inslee. I mean, ridiculous. He's just trying to serve the people. Now, we can disagree with policies and, and all of those things, and we can, we can go through the list, and I would agree with a lot of those disagreements. But to degrade him, to disrespect him, to, to curse his family, to threaten him for his just his simple desire to try and serve is ridiculous. This is the political world that we live in. In the last few years, I've seen churches divide over whether they should wear masks or not. I've seen churches divide over how to deal with very real racial injustice. And of course, politics is above and through and in it all. Politics has driven our response, too many Christians' response with how to deal with the situations in their world. Now, I say this, I have a global perspective. I've been in communist China. I've been on the border of South Korea, looking into North Korea, one of the most oppressive regimes in the world. There is a time and a place for Christians to disobey the will of the government. When a, when a country says, you cannot tell people about Jesus, we tell people about Jesus, right? But it takes wisdom. It takes nuance, and it takes a perspective knowing that ultimately who is in charge here. God is in charge. And so there are a couple of issues that I think drive our disunity, drive our, our seduction into one extreme or another, whether you're conservative or you're liberal. I see two issues that have driven this disunity, and they were in place in Jesus' time, and I think they're in place in our culture as well. One is a lack of nuance. Nuance is a French word, but it means the inability to see shades or subtle differences. A lack of nuance. Like, we, people are so politically entrenched that if somebody across the aisle does anything good, we can't talk about it. We still don't like them. We can't even acknowledge that they did something good. Lack of nuance, an inability to see something that's a diff, little bit different than what we anticipated. And another thing I see that has permeated so many Christians' thinking is misplaced trust. Misplaced trust. We, we think um, it is our will, our vote, our political party, our, our agenda that's going to accomplish God's purposes. <laughs> so silly. But we think that. We believe that. We fight for that. We disfellowship. We, we cut ourselves off from friends and family because of that. Christians do this. Misplaced trust. Misplaced trust. In his answer to the Pharisees and the Herodians, Jesus shows remarkable nuance. He can distinguish between Caesar and God. Fancy that. <laughs> he can say, give Caesar his little pennies. And Jesus doesn't fall into the question either or. He doesn't fall for that. So whether it's your parents, your boss, or your governments, we are all called to respect the authorities that are in place above us. But, there's always a but, isn't there? 
our allegiance, our hearts, our affections, our hopes, those are in God alone. And I'll tell you what, that is, for me, so much better news than hoping that at the next election, my guy's going to get in. (laughs) So I don't know about you, but I'm really glad this interaction was preserved for us. Like I said, it had an immediate context. But God saw fit that we would be talking about it some years later, that we'd be considering what does it mean for us? How do we follow Jesus in this same way? How do we follow Jesus? In the, how do we have nuance when there's hot-button political topics? The issue of abortion. How do we both hold to the biblical ethic of life while also understanding there are women that are seeking abortion because they feel like they have no other hope, no other opportunity, no resources? We had a, a Jessica and I in youth ministry had interactions with young girls that were pregnant and they had no hope and they they felt the only hope was to terminate the baby how do we walk with people like that nuance but how do we also make sure that our trust is not misplaced that we understand the sovereignty of god that our allegiance is not to as one one person said not to a donkey or an elephant but a lamb that's where our allegiance is so I'll just end with a verse that has really been a guiding verse for me in my followership of Jesus. And that's not it. <laughs> Can you go to Romans 12 too, Isaac? Oh, it's not showing on the back for some reason. Okay. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Um, Eugene Peterson, he phrases it like this. He says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. That's kind of his paraphrase of this verse. So church family, it's important for us to fix our attention on God. To engage it with nuance, but with the overall understanding that God is in control. That our allegiance, our affections, our hope are in him. We engage politically. We fight for what is right in the culture around us. And we hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus while we do it. You know, just days after this interaction with these religious leaders, Jesus would hang on a cross. Most of you know this, but he was put there because he switched places with a man named Barabbas. And Barabbas, he was a rebel by the dictionary definition of the word. He had murdered somebody in an attempted insurrection against the Roman Empire. Here is somebody who was actually guilty of crime, actually guilty of insurrection, and he was swapped for Jesus. Where Caesar demanded payment by his subjects so that they could live in his kingdom, Jesus gave his life as a payment so we could live in his. So Father, thank you for that. Thank you for reminding us this morning as your disciples, as your followers. We're reminded through the songs we sing, our deliverer. We're reminded by the elements that we took together, the bread and the cup, 
You sacrifice for us. And we're reminded from this word of yours that was preserved for us to challenge us. We thank you for the authorities that are placed above us. We pray for our mayor, Mayor Pavoni here in Renton. We ask that he would rule with wisdom and justice and equity. We pray for our mayor, Governor Inslee. Father, that there would be peace and clarity and wisdom. We pray for our president, President Joe Biden. Father, in the midst of war and pandemic and economic downturn, I can't imagine the wait. Oh, Father, would you meet him? Would you lead him? Would you reveal yourself to him in such a way that you'd have your wisdom, Lord? And Lord, I pray for each member of our church that we would We would not buy into the false narrative of the Pharisees and the Herodians, that it's an either or. That we would be able to honor and pray for those leaders, but we'd be reminded that you are in charge of everything. Your image is on us. Your inscription of God is on on the creation around us. We see it in the mountains and the trees and the ocean. Your thumbprint is on everything including our president and our governor and our mayor. So, Father, we pray for them. We honor and respect them, but our allegiance is to you. Oh, Father, may our hope be placed in you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that guides us. May we be disciples that reflect that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.